It's good to be with you once again on this Lord's Day. Um, we will be continuing in our teaching series through the book of Job called Sovereign Suffering. Last Sunday, we looked at Satan's first assault, where he removed Job's prosperity and children. And we learned that Job did not curse God to his face like Satan said he would. Instead, Job continued to worship and bless God, thus proving that God's word is true and that God is worthy to be worshipped for who He is, not merely because of what He gives. To further magnify His glory, God offers a second challenge to Satan. He gives him another shot at Job. Satan suggests that the removal of Job's health will finally lead Job to curse God and expose his false piety and prove that no one actually worships God for who He is. And God, as before, accepts this. He not only promotes this challenge, but He accepts it and accepts Satan's terms in this sort of second testing of Job. Now, please take your Bibles and turn over to Job. We're going to be looking at chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10, that'll be our text for this morning. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I have entitled this message, Satan's Second Assault. And I think it would be a good time just to pause and pray just once more for God's help before we get to work. Father, we thank you once more for this morning and the blessed privilege of gathering in your name. And now we ask for your help as we begin to study your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and ears and hearts to the truth, that you would sanctify and encourage us through the word, that you would convict us through the word, that you would train us through the word, that you would, most importantly, glorify yourself through the word. We humbly submit to you now and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we can pick up where we left off last Sunday. That means we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. I hope you have your, your Bibles handy there. Here's what it says, the next thing that's written here. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Let me stop right there. Now these opening lines here in chapter 2 are identical to the lines over in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Maybe you picked up on that. And maybe uh, that's part of the poetic nature of the book of Job. There is a uh, a repeating flow, which is a kind of poetic type of writing. And we see that here. The difference in these two sections is in the first word. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it begins with this. It says, now there was a day. Now being the first word. In chapter 2, verse 1 here in our text begins with again. And it says there was a day. So you've got... Now and again, that's the only difference between the two pieces of text or sections of Scripture. 
And the use of now and again is there deliberately, and what it does is it establishes an ongoing pattern. There's a repetition here for a reason, not just because of poetry, but that the angels, sons of God that are mentioned here, are in the habit of perpetually coming before God and presenting themselves. Now and again represents a established pattern. So this happens over and over and over. We could say now and again and again and again and again. So there is a pattern. Now let's break down some of the phrases and, and uh, words here. The sons of God, we did talk about this a few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago. That is an ancient title for angels, an ancient title for angels. But we must understand that angels are not literal sons of God. In Hebrews 1.5, no one but Jesus has ever been referred to as a literal son of God. So angels are not literal sons of God, even though it says sons of God here. It's just an ancient title for them. We must understand that there is only one literal begotten son of God, Jesus Christ. Psalm 2.7, Matthew 3.17, John 3.16, for he gave his only begotten son, right? And there are, of course, many adopted sons and daughters of God, right? All who are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 6.18. Angels are called sons not because they are literal sons of God, but because they were created by God. Sons refers to their origin, not their familial status. So we need to be clear about that here. Angels are not literal sons of God. There is one true literal son of God, and then there are adopted sons and daughters, and that would be you and I if we are in Christ. Next phrase, they came to present themselves before the Lord. This is, to me, one of the most fascinating phrases in this whole text. That's just interesting to me that they present themselves before the Lord as messengers and ministering spirits, right? Luke 1.19, Hebrews 1.14. Angels, what? As messengers and ministering spirits, they present themselves or report to God regularly. When they report to God, they are given tasks to carry out. And when those tasks are completed, they do what? They report back. So you get the idea here in the text that that these angels come before God to present themselves for service. They're sent out with orders. They return and give a report of how that service went, which is interesting because God already knows all things and all the end results, but they still do it. But not all the angels who were present during the previous meeting we read about in chapter 1 and this meeting on this particular day right, that we're reading about in chapter 2, not all the angels that are present are good. They're not all good. Some were fallen. Some were uh, evil. Some were disobedient. And then the next phrase is interesting too. It says, Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Satan is not a messenger or a ministering spirit like the unfallen holy angels. He is the adversary, right? 1 Peter 5.8. But his position and his authority is under the sovereign kingship of God. He must also present himself and report to God. Don't you find that interesting? 
Uh, that was one of the things that I marveled at a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at basically the same uh, terminology in chapter 1. As I said two weeks ago, this group of good and bad angels, including Satan, appear to serve on a holy council or a heavenly council, not a holy council, a heavenly council. And we looked a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that in Psalm 89 verses 6 and 7 and Jeremiah 23 verse 18 and of course in 1 Kings 22 verses 20 through 23. So God appears to have a heavenly council that has both good and bad angels on it and it would appear that Satan himself is on this council. Now, that's not to say that, that Satan is on the council and he's a positive member of it. He's an adversary. But God even uses the adversary to accomplish his purposes somehow. I mean, that's certainly the instance with Jesus. Satan indwelt Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is arrested and and is, is severely persecuted and punished and then crucified and killed. Do you see how God worked through the actions, the evil intent and evil, just pure evil of Satan and Judas to accomplish his good purposes? That's complementarianism. God works all things for his, his purposes, even evil. And so in this regard here, Satan has to report to God in some sense. And I tell you what, to me, it's... It's mysterious, and I don't quite understand that. I always thought they were so separated and isolated, one's over here, one's over here, but that's dualism. That's not what the Bible teaches. But I'm actually comforted to know that the forces of evil are not completely autonomous and are subject to the sovereign God. If that, does that bring you comfort knowing that? It might be mysterious. It might be difficult to understand and comprehend. It is, right? But to me, I find great comfort in knowing that Satan is not completely loose and cannot do just whatever he wants to do all the time. I find comfort in that. Because I'll tell you what, when, he, when you take a look at the world and watch the news, it seems like he is fully autonomous. He's on rollerblades, rolling all over the world, causing hell on earth. But even in that, he's restricted and I would say that not only are these forces of evil, demons, Satan, not only are they um, subject to God, but they are also restrained by God. They are restrained by God in some sense. Think about it back in chapter 1, in the first challenge Satan issued, um, what Satan was not permitted, right? He was restrained from physically harming Job at that point. Chapter 1, verse 12. So Satan wants to destroy Job, and God says, you can destroy everything he has, but you can't destroy his health. There's restraint. The book of Revelation talks about how the devil will be chained, and he won't be able to deceive the nations. So, so God is in the business of restraining evil at times. In fact, I have a great example of how God restrains evil his name is John Hendon. He's sitting over there. He's a police officer. What does he do? He restrains evil as a government official. That's what law enforcement does. That is another way that God restrains evil. And this is why 
defunding the police is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life because they are the thin blue line of defense against evil, particularly evil people with evil desires and evil intentions. And when you remove that, we're all up on our roofs with our rifles defending our little homesteads. That is an example. John is an example. Law enforcement, military, they are examples of government institutions that God has ordained to restrain evil. Now, that's not to say that those government institutions cannot create evil because they do with the legalization of abortion and these other things. So it's a double-edged sword there. But that's not God's design for government. It is to punish evil, not commit evil. Of course, it's a fallen world and it's not a perfect scenario. I think it's comforting to know that the forces of evil, that Satan himself, are restrained. I think sometimes they are permitted to do and work more evil than at other times. I think we would all agree that World War II is a testimony to that, that that was some unmitigated, straight-up evil, Hitler. But that eventually came to an end. God eventually restrained it and destroyed it. Satan was not permitted to kill Job, right? In verse 6 of our text, there's again another example of God restraining the forces of darkness. Now, another thing that's interesting is these appearances of Satan in heaven are very interesting to me. And they tell us something about him. They tell us that he is not confined to a place of torment like some people believe and teach, right? How many of you were under the impression that Satan basically sits in hell tormenting sinners? That is false theology. Uh, years ago, I attended an event called the 99. Uh, there was a few people here that went with me. I think Cameron did. I can tell by the scowl on his face he was there. It was not a happy event. Uh, and it was supported by a local church. And I don't want to pick on that church. Uh, just I want to pick on this event um, it featured live exhibits with, and it was really a student event, but it featured live exhibits with student actors pretending to be killed in car crashes. And you had all these students that had blood and their necks cut, and they were, you know, they were, they were posing in car accidents or gang shootings and all these things. And I guess 99 teenagers die in this country every day, and they die from car crashes and gang violence and drug overdoses. And so this event had all of those things with live exhibits. They had all these displays of that stuff. And near the end of it, there was a hell room, a hell room, and it had strobe lights, and thank God there wasn't anyone in there with epilepsy because that would have been true hell for that person. Um, but there was a hell room with strobe lights and, you know, screaming and moaning and groaning, and there was a lot of fake blood and carnage. There were... Uh, fake jail cells, you know, laid around. I have, to, I have to give them credit on the production value. It didn't look like something that, you know, Davis High put on. It, it was very realistic and very gory, but there were these jail cells with these ghoulish students, you know, behind it going, let me out, you know, and, and screaming and, and crying. And, and there was a, a, a guy, a, a reasonably good-sized guy with a pointed beard in a devil suit, and, and he had a pitchfork in his hand, and he was taunting the ghoulish students in the cages, and you're with me forever, you're going to roast forever with me, and, 
and he was pointing at the people that were walking by, including me, you know, and, and, and I think Cameron was there, and Cameron's like, what, what do you got? Come on, man, you know. Uh, were you there at that thing? Yeah, yeah. You see how enthusiastic he was? Yes. Uh, but anyways, they had this devil guy there, and he was doing all this stuff. And uh, really what the event was supposed to do is it was supposed to scare the hell out of kids and get them to pray a prayer and sign a card. That's why it was there. And uh, the very last room was the most terrifying room of all. It was the merchandise room where you could buy your 99 sweatshirt and, you know, your fake devil beard. They didn't have that, but they should have. And, and here's another kicker. The event cost 15 bucks to get in. You want people to know the Lord and to allegedly hear the gospel, but it's 15 bucks to get in and make sure you get your swag on the way out. I got saved at the 99, you know, whatever. The trouble is the 99 was an absolute total theological train wreck. One car was blasting right into the other as the train crashed. Satan is neither in hell nor is he the tormentor of hell. So if that's your theology, I'm correcting you now, lovingly. Hell was created for him and the demons. It is a place of punishment and torment for Satan and his demons, not where he is the tormentor. So this idea of him being down there and poking people and taunting people and tormenting people is either, we're getting that either from Dante or just bad biblical exegesis. Hell is where Satan and the demons and all unbelievers will be punished for all eternity. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, we, there we read about them being thrown into the lake of fire, which is synonymous with hell. So the tormentor of hell is not Satan. Guess who the tormentor of hell is? God. God is the tormentor of hell. God is omnipresent, which means He is everywhere all at once, and He is in hell. He is in hell, and He is not there being tormented or punished. He is the one who torments and punishes and exercises divine judgment against all unbelievers and will eventually do that against all the demons and Satan. And there are some demons that are there now, and right now we typically call it Hades. I would say that, and I would say it like this, Satan is not what makes hell terrifying. God, in all his raging, furious wrath and justice, is what makes hell terrifying. This is why uh, Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is what, He is who makes heaven glorious and astounding, and beautiful, and peaceful, but He is equally the one who makes hell hellish. In hell, people are not, as you've been taught as well, that they are separated from the presence of God. No one can ever be separated from the literal presence of God who is omnipresent. What they are separated from in hell is God's good side, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. That's what they're separated from, the kind and loving God who causes the rain to fall on the wicked and the righteous, the 
incredibly merciful God who has redeemed a people for Himself. There is, that, is, that is not the side of God that people experience there, and that's what makes hell so utterly terrifying. Satan is not in hell. He is not in hell, but he will be in the future. Nowadays, he does what? He goes to and fro on the earth, and he also enters heaven to present himself to God. And another thing that he does there is that he accuses the brethren, right? Day and night, Revelation 12, 10. And he also goes out from the presence of the Lord, it says in Job here. So Satan is in two places, not at the same time, but he travels around the earth. And he also goes up and down from heaven, but he has not yet been subjected to hell. I don't mean to pick on the 99 people, but it's just terrible theology and it gives the wrong impression. And anyone who's ever been scared like that into believing in Jesus becomes unscared about a week later when they don't see another threat. We just need to help people understand they're sinners and that we have, a, you know, we're terrible sinners, but we have a terrific Savior. And we just preach the gospel to them and pray for them and leave it in God's hands. But we don't need to try to scare the hell out of them, quote unquote, and get them to make some kind of a feeble emotional decision. This thing that we're in here is not based on emotions. There is an emotion behind it when you get saved, but it's not based on emotions. It's based on clear knowledge and the gifts of repentance and faith that God graciously grants. Next phrase, and the Lord said to Satan... Like before in chapter 1, Satan is the only angel God speaks to here. He does not address the other angels. The only conversation here is with Lucifer, with Satan, with the devil. Next phrase, from where have you come? God asks him this question. Uh, God did not ask Satan this question because he did not know where Satan had been. He knew exactly where Satan had been. He knows all things. He is omniscient, all-knowing. What he was doing is he was trying to elicit a confession from the fallen angel, but Satan's answer is vague. What does Satan say from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it? So Satan wouldn't at this point even acknowledge what he had just done. What had he just done? He had decimated Job's wealth. He had slaughtered Job's servants. He had murdered Job's ten children. This is what Satan had just done. And when God asks him, what were you just doing? He does not confess what he was doing as if God doesn't know. <laughs> Luther was right when he wrote in, in one of the great hymns, right? A mighty fortress. Our ancient foe is armed with cruel hate. Satan is a heartless sociopath. He really is. And I say that with all due respect to the fact that he's a created angel and he's above me. I don't say that as a, as a, as a slam on him. I don't think it's wise to curse him. I'm not afraid of him, but I don't think it's wise to curse him. But he is like a sociopath. He has asked clearly here what he's been doing. God knows what he's been doing, but he will not admit to it. Why? Because he doesn't care. He doesn't care what he just did to Job. He's happy about what he just did to Job. He is an adversary. 
he is an adversary. I remember in junior high ministry, we had a Q&A, and one of the kids asked, can Satan be saved? <laughs> the answer was no. That was all I said. I didn't know what else to say. In God's plan and big picture, it's not ordained for Satan to be a redeemed angel, nor is it his plan for any of the fallen angels to be redeemed, nor is it his plan for any of the reprobate, people who will never respond positively to the gospel. It's not in his plan for them to be saved. It's just the way God works it. In God's economy of things, you have God who is good and you have an adversary who is bad. That's the way God has lined it out. That's the way God has ordained it. Have you ever noticed how that's a common theme in writing? There's always good versus evil. Where do you think that idea comes from? Where do you think all literature that speaks to that and movies and everything else, where do you think that they got their inspiration from? This is the ultimate book of good and evil. And the difference is, is there aren't any good guys in here. There's only bad guys. There's only one good guy. What's his name? Jesus. But this is a, a, a cosmic battle between good and evil, but God has won the battle. God has to have an adversary in His economy of things, and He's got a good one. Satan does his job. No remorse here. He won't even admit to what he's done. That gives you a little idea about how he is and how hateful and nasty and mean he really is. Now we can move to verse 3a. And the Lord said to Satan, have you... Considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So verse 3a is totally identical to chapter 1, verse 8. Spitting image, exact same wording. Again, God asks Satan, this is the second time, if he has considered his servant Job. Now we know that Satan has considered Job. He's already slapped him pretty good. This is God just saying, well, maybe you should reconsider Job, right? And the, the question that God asks Satan here, if he's considered Job, which we know he has, it's immediately followed by the exact same towering statements about Job by God. Remember in chapter 1, God boasted about Job and who he was and who he is. And he does the exact same thing, or he repeats this boast, there is none like him on earth. He is a blameless and upright man, God says. He fears me, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. This is God boasting a second time to the adversary about Job. Two weeks ago, I asked all of us, especially me, if God could boast about us like this. Could he? Could he boast about you? to the adversary, because there's really no one like you on earth. And this was a different time. There's a lot of godly people in the earth today, so I don't know if that applies. But could he say of you that you are a blameless and upright man or woman? Could he say of you that, that you actually fear God and turn away from evil? Do we live blameless, upright, evil-shunning lives? That's what we're called to do. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, which consists of being blameless, being upright, and 
turning from evil. That's what that means. That's who we're to be. That's who we're to be. Verse 3b, speaking of Job, God is, is still talking to Satan here. He says, He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God pointed out Satan's failure by describing Job's reaction to his losses. He maintained his integrity, right? He kept on worshiping. He kept on blessing God after losing his wealth and children. Maybe that's a good time to pause and say, is that how we would respond to losing all our wealth and children? It's how we're called to respond. It's, it's as if God is, in a sense, rubbing that in Satan's face. Have you reconsidered him? Because he passed the first test. He didn't do what you said he would do. This is what God is saying to Satan. Now, God not only says that to Satan, but He basically rebukes Satan as well for attempting to get him to destroy Job for no reason. All right, look at the wording. Satan wanted God to stretch out his own hand and smite all that Job has. Chapter 1, verse 11. But God refused. Why? Because Job had done nothing to deserve his discipline or judgment. God is just. He gives people what they deserve. Romans 2, 6, every man will be judged according to his works. God gives every man what he deserves for his works. He is fully just. He is. And yet God is also gracious. He gives men what they do not deserve Mercy in Christ Jesus, Romans 9, 15. God had no reason to personally smite blameless, upright Job, so he would not do it. He was, however, willing to allow Satan to assault Job. Twice! What I want you to see in Job is you do not see the literal hand of God smiting Job. You see Satan smiting Job with God's permission because of God's purposes. But God is not lifting His hand against His own servant. He does not. He refuses to do it because Job had done nothing wrong. Why? Because God is just. God will not smite the innocent. The trouble is there's no one who's innocent, so everyone deserves to be smited by Him. Amen? Man, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has never smited or killed or destroyed an innocent person. Well, He did on one occasion, Jesus. And that was for all the other people who aren't innocent. God is just. He punishes the wicked. He gives them exactly what they got coming to Him. Job was in a right standing with God. God could not lift His hand against His servant who was in right standing with Him. But he certainly could allow Satan to do it, again, for his purposes. But we must realize that even though he permitted and allowed Satan to do it twice, God also knew the outcome, did he not? He knew how all these things would turn out. 
He knew. He knew how Job would, would, would respond in both instances. He, he, he knew the, the travail and, and the greater difficulty that Job would experience when interacting with his quote-unquote loving friends. He knew that Job, from this point forward, would wonder why for 40 chapters, why did this happen to me? And he also knew that he would never, ever, ever give Job an answer. Why? Because I'm God, that's my answer. God is not obligated to give us answers as to why we suffer. We're just supposed to trust Him as Job did. And I suppose God gives a gracious allowance for some complaining because Job complained for 40 some odd chapters. But be careful how you complain. You can curse God in your complaining. You've got to be careful. God knew the outcome. He knew Job would maintain his integrity and continue to worship God, thus proving that God's word is true and that he is worthy to be worshipped for who he is, not merely because of what he gives. How did Satan respond to God's second challenge and rebuke? Because remember, there's a correction here. You tried to get me to destroy him myself. I wouldn't do it. Uh, let's move to verses 4 to 5 to see how Satan responded. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, exclamation point. It's like he's yelling this. It's like... You don't, need to, you don't need to yell. Skin for skin. And he says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Skin for skin. It's an interesting phrase. It was a bartering term that was used among fur traders in that day. They would trade the skin of one animal for the skin of another. You could trade 10 skins of one animal for the skin of one other animal because that other animal's skin was worth a lot more money. You think of the, the beaver traders and all that back in the old days. Skin for skin is a, a, a term used by traders, fur traders. Satan is borrowing here with that phrase. And Satan suggested that Job was primarily interested in his own personal health. And given the opportunity, he would easily trade his integrity and piety for his own skin. That's what Satan is saying here. If we smite his skin, he will curse you. In fact, there's an allegation here that basically Job has sacrificed the skin of his own children to save his own skin. That's what Satan is suggesting here. Well, you can slay all them as long as you don't mess with my health. That's the allegation that Satan is hurling against Job here. Remember, he's the accuser, right? He's the accuser of the brethren. He says these things about us. But we have a tremendous, terrific advocate, don't we, in Jesus, who says no. Now, to prove his theory, Satan tries to incite God to stretch out his hand and smite Job's bone and flesh. The loss of his health will then cause Job to curse God to his face, and Satan will finally win. And we need to take note of something here. I think it's important that we focus a little bit here. The two things Satan suggests and goes after in these opening chapters are Job's wealth and health. You pick up on that? Wealth and health are two things 
all people, all sinners want. You might think, well, what about the tribesmen on the Serengeti? Trust me, he wants health and he wants wealth. He does. He may be in a loincloth with a spear in his hand, but he wants wealth and health just as bad as the guy who works on Wall Street. And, and boy, he would take it if he could get his hands on it. All people, it, it, is, it is part of our nature and even our fallen nature for us to want wealth and health. It's part of who we are. It's embedded in our DNA. Those are the two basic fundamental things that all people want. Have you ever heard of a sick person saying, I love being sick and I want to keep being sick? What are we always praying for with people? That God would make them well. Why? Because they want health. What about the guy who's lost his job? What are we praying for? God, give him a job so he can get his wealth back. What does that guy want? His wealth. It's fundamental. These are the two most fundamental wants and desires of every person. And guess what? Satan knows this. He has studied fallen humanity for a long time. He has had countless souls sold to him, um, sold him, pardon me, sold to him for what? Fame and fortune. You've heard the phrase, he sold his soul to the devil. How many souls have been, theoretically, it can't really happen, but how many souls have people sold to Satan for wealth? Just, you know, you can have my soul, I'll spend all eternity in hell, that's fine, but just give me, give me health, give me wealth, give me wealth, give me health in this life, Satan. He has had countless souls sold to him for those things. Assaulting Job's wealth and health shows that Satan is a student of humanity who knows what sinners want above all else. And all of us feel that pull. If you've ever been sick for any length of time, you, f you know what it's like and how bad it is to be sick and how badly you want out of that. If you have chronic pain, you know what I'm talking about. There have probably been times where maybe you thought to yourself, I'd give just about anything not to have this ailment. You see how it is in us? Satan understands us. He knows this. He has studied us for a long time. Satan dangles wealth and health before sinners like a fisherman dangles a worm before fish. He knows what sinners will do to gain these things, right? Men have killed to preserve their health and lives. Men have killed to get wealth. Satan is a killer. He's an, he's an original murderer. Satan dangled Job's wealth before the Sabians and the Chaldeans, and they quickly took the bait, didn't they? Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? In the last chapter where the Sabians came and took a bunch of his livestock and killed his servants, and then the Chaldeans did that too. Why did they do that? Because of that intrinsic built-in desire for wealth. And Satan dangled Job's price, not priceless, but very expensive livestock before those two people groups. And what did they do? They took the bait and went and killed those servants and took that wealth. You see? Here's what I find absolutely interesting. The fastest 
growing religious movement in the world today is the charismatic movement. Why? Because the charismatic movement promotes the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel promises two things, which just happen to be the two things sinners want most, wealth and health. This tells us who's behind that movement, doesn't it? Satan is behind it. Satan is behind it. Who is behind it? It's not God. It is that ancient student of humanity who knows what sinners want, the one who uses wealth and health as bait, Satan. The prosperity gospel is Satan's gospel. He uses it to deceive the masses and keep sinners from hearing the true gospel. The true gospel does not promote wealth and health. It does not promote those things. It challenges us to repent and trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be saved and have eternal life. It tells us that following Jesus, you will not have your best life now. By following Jesus, it will be costly. Bearing our cross is difficult. We will be hated and despised and have trouble in this life. That is a gospel promise. But it's followed by our reward in heaven is great. Our reward in heaven, not in this life. Amen? You just can't miss the connection here between what Satan goes after and what all people want and what one particular religious movement promotes above all else. I, just, I had to stop here. And if you were in the movement, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm trying to point out simple facts. So don't, don't kill the messenger. How did God respond to Satan's theory about Job, right? Because Job's saying, look, if you smite his health, he'll curse you. That'll be the straw that broke the camel's back. How did God respond to his theory? How did he respond to the the challenge here? We've got to move to verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Like before, God refused to stretch out his own hand and personally smite Job. He wouldn't do it. He says, he's in your hand. He says, I'm not going to do it. He did, however, permit Satan to assault Job's health with one sovereign restriction. Satan had to spare his life. See, there's yet another example of how God restrains evil. We have to admit that what was happening to Job was evil. But God restrained it here. He said, you you can attack his health, but you cannot kill him. That is the sovereignty of God at work, and that is God sovereignly restraining evil. But He allows it up to that point nonetheless, which I still think is difficult for me to comprehend. What happened next? We move to verses 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of, this is Job here he's speaking of, and And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So Satan immediately goes out from the presence of the Lord and descends to earth to unleash the full fury of his authority over Job's life. 
Remember, he had to be given that authority, but he unleashes it here. Without a moment's delay, he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. These sores were like the ones God sent upon Egypt, Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 11, these painful boils it talks about there. In an effort to release infection or stop the itching, Job would take pieces of broken pottery and use them to scrape his sores. If you've ever gotten a mosquito bite, for some reason drawing an X on it with your fingernail seems to quell the itching. Well, Job had super itch, and he was taking pieces of pottery and scraping these boils right off of them. Can you imagine? I would not have been able to watch him do that. Oof. These were boils. And Job did this. He would scrape these boils off while he sat in the ashes, it says. The ashes would have been at his local garbage dump where trash was burned. So Job has all of this affliction. He loses his wealth. He loses his children. He loses... um, Now he loses his health, and what does he do? He goes to the local garbage dump where they burn trash, and he sits in the cooled ashes and tosses them on his body and over his head. And he wasn't doing this because it was like calamine lotion. The ancients put on sackcloth. It was like burlap. And they also put on ashes as a symbol of debasement or mourning and or repentance. Esther chapter 4, verse 1, Job was so terribly grieved over the loss of his wealth and children and health that he followed this ancient ritual of mourning, and he did it at the town dump where others could see him. How humiliating. Back in those days, they didn't hide when they cried like we do. We don't want people to see us mourning and crying. Back then, they just did it right out in the open as an an open display of their terrible sadness. And he does it in a public place. The greatest of all the people of the East had become the poorest and most visually appalling man in all the land. How sad. Now we can move to verse 9. And this just does not help. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife's faith buckled under this trauma as she was unable to cope with its suddenness and severity. Now, we need to be careful not to make moral judgments about her here. We do. We need to be careful here. Some of these commentaries are just brutal against her, and I think it's ridiculous. She had lost her wealth. She had lost her children. And I I don't know if, if this is true. I'll go out on a limb, but I think that the loss of children is experienced differently by the one who bore them than the husband. I'm not saying that husbands would not grieve over the loss of their children. Look at Job. He's a bloody mess. But I think with, with wives, with mamas, it's different. There's some kind of a 
I don't know if it's a deeper connection or something there, but if you carried that child for nine months and, and, and breastfed that child and, and nurtured that child and cared for that children while daddy was at work making the, bringing home the bacon, you've got to, wives, mothers develop a very, very close, intimate connection with their children. And I think that when a couple loses a child, I just think it has a, a different kind of impact on mom. It does. And, and I think we see that in the text. Let's not forget who she is and what she's experienced. And let's also not forget the fact that she was now yoked with a, a very sick man. And wives all know how difficult it is to deal with sick husbands. They get a splinter. I'm dying. Right? And they're like, buck it up. I've been throwing up all night. You got a splinter. Right? Men don't do well when they're sick. We don't. We can't handle it. We want our wives to become nurses and treat us. My wife is not a nurse. And she does not treat me when I'm sick. <laughs> she doesn't. She treats me, but not the way I want to be treated. She don't baby me. But think about this. You've lost all your wealth, and that's going to have an impact on her. Amen? She's lost all her children. I don't even know how you deal with that. And now she's dealing with <laughs> that. Right? Come on. Come on now. Job was a heaping mess of a husband who was undoubtedly moaning all day and all night, groaning every day. He's sick now. He's got boils all over him. We need to remember that Job's wife was hurting and hurting differently than him. She was hurting badly. And people say and do stupid things when they are hurting badly, don't they? Huh? I believe that was the case here. In bitterness, she calls on Job to curse God and die to end his misery. Why don't you just curse God and die? We should both do it so we can just get out of here. That's, that's the thought. Now, according to 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, there is a sin that can lead to instant physical death. It is identified here in verse 9, curse God, and what does it say? And die. Curse God. A person curses God when they take one of God's names like Yahweh and use it to attack the creator and ruler of the universe, the Holy One who sits in the heavens and the gracious God of the covenant. It is a form of blasphemy, but it's not the same as taking God's name in vain, using the GD. And that's as far as I'll go with it, even though the commentary fully spelled it out. I'm like, what? You cannot go into a store today, interact with people today, watch a movie today where there aren't many GDs, right? That is a popular thing today, and that's a form of blasphemy. But that is not what is meant here in the text. It's in the reverse. It's when you flip the letters, D, G. When you say, damn, you know what I'm saying? It's not G, D, it's D, G. That's cursing God. It's in the reverse. 
And this particular sin is punishable by instant death. Now, you've probably been wondering, well, if it's the regular old GD, why don't people die when they do it? Because that's not the same sin as cursing God. It's in the reverse. I say don't even try it. How stupid and ridiculous. That is a sin that is punishable by instant death. It doesn't mean that every time somebody does it, they will be struck down. But it can happen, and it has happened. And Job's wife is saying, just do that to end your misery. God will smite you, and the pain ends. But the Bible doesn't promise heaven to those who curse God. So I'm thinking that if he does something like this, I mean, if he's a genuine believer, he's locked, locked, and, you know, he's locked in. But why would you curse God in that way to get him to kill you to put you in heaven with him? Those who curse God in this way don't normally get heaven. They go right to hell where they belong. So that's her theory. That's her thinking. Job's wife was insinuating that Job needed to forsake his spiritual integrity by cursing God, thus inviting divine discipline and death. In reality, she had become the mouthpiece of the devil, parroting the exact words of Satan's challenge to God. Chapter 1, verse 11. Augustine called Job's wife the devil's assistant. Calvin called her Satan's tool. Now, Job's reply to his wife is a model of faith under trial. We can move to 10a. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job kindly corrects his wife. This is a kind correction. Some call it a stern rebuke. I don't see it that way. It is a kind correction. He did not call her foolish, but said she is speaking like foolish women would speak. You see the difference there? He didn't say, hey, don't be a foolish woman like other women. He said, you're speaking as foolish women speak. This was his way of telling her that her words are not worthy of her and that she is above that kind of irrational faithless speech. We would say her conduct was unbecoming of a Christian at that moment. That's what we would say because I believe she was a devoted believer. Job's kind correction is immediately followed by a spectacular statement which shows that his confidence in God remained unshakable and that he had retained his integrity. He acknowledges that both good and evil are brought into the lives of believers by God and that we are to worship Him regardless. The Hebrew word for evil is ra, ra. A better English rendering of this here would be adversity, like in the NASB, the NASB. The word evil seems to impugn God's holiness. It does in my opinion. I don't know why the ESV translators went with it. It makes God sound like He sends evil and commits evil. God is neither the author of evil nor does He commit evil, but He allows evil and yet He also at the same time restrains it. And He does, though, send adversity when situations call for it, doesn't He? A better rendering of, of verse 10a would be, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? That's how the NASB renders it. That's a much stronger rendering. Adversity is God's winnowing fork. He uses it to separate the wheat from the chaff in the church. 
When he sends adversity, the wheat, true believers, will continue to be fruitful and worship God. But the chaff, fall believers, will fly away and leave the church. Adversity is also God's sanctifying tool. He uses it to shape, mold, and conform His people to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Adversity is a blessing. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. Adversity led to Joseph's captivity, confinement, and chief position in Egypt, which enabled him to save his family from starvation and preserve the line of Christ. Adversity left the, uh, led to the arrest and crucifixion of our Lord, which secured our salvation. Adversity led the church in Jerusalem to split and go in every direction, resulting in the, the spreading of the gospel throughout the Roman world. Adversity is a blessing. Adversity is a, an important facet of God's providence. Think about this. Africans were originally brought here as slaves. That's terrible. That's horrible. Today, America has more black millionaires, more black business owners, more black politicians, more black doctors, more black scientists, more black leaders, more black success stories than any other nation in the world, including Africa. That's God's providence. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. Tearing down all these monuments that tell the story is stupid. You're trying to erase history? You can't erase God's providence. Slavery was evil and wicked, but God used it for good later on. God is the only one who can do something like this, where He can take something that is so absurd and nasty and use His sovereign power to transform it and conform it and to transform it into something of beauty. Adversity is a blessing. Adversity is a blessing, and yet our culture does everything it can to avoid adversity. But as believers, we ought to embrace it with joy, knowing that God is in control, knowing that it is part of God's plan, knowing that God will use that adversity, what? For the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. This is what Scripture teaches over and over and over. Adversity is a good thing. COVID-19 is adversity. How are we responding to it? Well, I'm not going to go to church because I won't wear a mask. Now you're creating adversity for me. Praise God. Teach me to love people who are hard to love. <sighs> adversity is good. Adversity is good. The question is, how do we respond to it? Now we can move to 10B. This is it. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What an important half verse. The loss of his health did not lead Job to curse God to God's face and expose his piety as false. Satan was defeated again. And God's word was vindicated and his glory was magnified again. But the test was far from over. The greatest assault, I believe, from Satan was about to begin. When Satan spoke through Job's wife, he would speak even more convincingly through Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. 
They came to comfort Job, but ended up accusing Job of wrongdoing and condemning him as a sinner who needs to repent before God fully destroys him. Imagine having friends that come to comfort, but they come and actually condemn because they're convinced that you've done something wrong and brought all this on yourself. What did God say in this text here? He vindicated Job by saying he had done nothing wrong. This is why I wouldn't smite him with my own hand. With friends like that, who needs enemies? Closing. We've been talking a lot about Job's terrible losses and unwavering commitment to God, which I think is just awesome. If Job were alive today, though, he would want his readers not to marvel at him or aim to become like him. He's not saying through this book, look at what I did and follow me. If he were here today, he would point us to the better Job. The better Job who lost heaven's riches to come to earth. The better Job who was attacked by Satan, who was attacked by sinners, who was abandoned by his own friends. The better Job who had his health taken by blows to the face, a cat of nine tails across his back, across his ribs, and by a crown of thorns. The better Job who was crucified on a rough, splintery cross like a common criminal. The better Job who was forsaken as he bore our dreadful sin on his own body. The better Job who lost not only his health, but gave his very life on the cross for the salvation of those who believe. The better Job is Jesus. Do we know him? Do we believe in him? Are we trusting in his person and work for our salvation? You must realize that only the better Job, Jesus Christ, can save us. Let's not make the mistake of stopping with ordinary Job. Regular Job can inspire us, but don't make the mistake of stopping at him. We must look beyond regular Job and see the one he'd be pointing to if he were here alive today. Our salvation is in the better Job, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our future is in the better Job, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the better Job, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that. We got to see Jesus in this book. And do this when God sends adversity our way, because He will. He's sending it to me now. May we know that His providence and sanctifying power is at work, and may we embrace that adversity with great joy. Amen.